Welcome to Lessons from History. Pupil absenteeism is in the news again, with studies revealing that levels of persistent absence has doubled since the pandemic, with over one in five pupils missing 10% or more of their school sessions. A recent report from the London School of Economics notes that a huge slice of the COVID generation have never got back into the habit of regularly attending school. The Education Secretary in England, Gillian Keegan, has suggested that head teachers should personally pick up children from home and bring them to school. But worries about school kids playing truant are nothing new. In this episode, we're going to discuss how this problem manifested itself and was tackled in the past. What period are we talking about, Daisy? So we're going to look at English state schools in the 50 years or so before World War One, so like late Victorian, late 19th century. And it's at this point that primary education becomes compulsory. And so the concept of absenteeism um, playing truant, it starts to become really important because it's only at this stage there is a state compulsion that you have to have to go to school. And we've talked about this a little bit. We've we've talked about this here a little bit in recent episodes. So in one of our recent episodes, we talked about the 1870 Education Act, which gives a lot of grants for new schools to be built, new primary schools. And we also talked recently about how that act also led to lots of new school buildings being built, some of which, lots of which are still are still with us today, the school board buildings. So that's the kind of context. The context is 1870, big central government education act that empowers the creation of these new local school boards, big school building program across the country and lots of pupils, lots of children who would never normally have gone to school. Suddenly there's places available for them. Um, in 1880, school attendance actually then does become compulsory. So the 1870 act sort of dances around a bit, doesn't make school attendance compulsory. 1880 it does. So it kicks in properly then. And so I guess the big issue is there's lots of there's there's lots of families, lots of communities where going to school is not part of the culture. It's never it's not been something you've done. And so you've got an issue now. You've got all these new buildings popping up. You've got all this money going towards education. Is anyone going to go to these schools? What if you build all these new school places for the kids who don't have school places? What if no one turns up? What if they all say, actually, I'd rather not? This is uh, the context of what we're going to talk about. So what are the big differences between then and now? Yeah, so it's easy to look at the sort of debates around absenteeism. And there are some similarities which we'll look at. But there's big differences as well. As I say, one big difference is there is, in a lot of places, no sort of culture of going to school. The other big difference is you've got springing up from the 1870 onwards very rapidly, as we discussed in the school buildings episode. You've got lots of really lovely, beautiful schools being built, uh, many of which, as we said, still exist today. And Lizzie, when we did that episode a couple of weeks ago, what I found fascinating was um, uh, a, a few people, quite a few people started discussing it on Twitter. And there were so many people who were talking with such affection about these 1870, post 1870 board schools. And people were sharing pictures of the schools that they'd uh, taught in or that they'd been to. Uh, one woman told me this long anecdote about how she'd been in teaching one of these schools and she was there after classes had ended and she thought it was haunted and a ghost turned up. <laughs> so people had all these stories about these lovely buildings, which clearly live on in the memory over a century after they were, were first built. Um, and that is quite different from today, <laughs> where, as we also discussed, you have a lot of school buildings that are collapsing and you don't really have a big, expensive um, building program. Yeah, that's interesting. So schools kind of being 
visible, aspirational, inspirational. It does feel rather different, actually. It does. And I think the other thing to get around is, well, it's not just that education and schools are inspirational and aspirational, state schools. What's really interesting about this period is that local government, now you mentioned local government to anyone today and their eyes glaze over. <laughs> and I know this because I've got a bit of a soft spot for the 1974 Local Government Act. And, you know, if I have a little bit too much to drink, I'll start telling you about like ceremonial counties and what have you. Um, and nobody wants to know. <laughs> People run screaming for the hills when they hear about local government. What is really interesting about this period is that local government is trendy. Local government is practically sexy. It's new. It's well-funded. It's smart, wealthy people want to work in local government. And let me give you, give you an example of this. Right about the 1890s, Foxwell Bridges built the one that's there today. And it, it's another, another, another thing that's hard to compute. It's built on time and under budget. <laughs> they have a little bit of money left over. So they think, what are we going to do with this money? And they commissioned some statues, which are still there. You can see them. You can only see them if you're on a boat. You can't really see them from the shore. So people don't really see them. They're embedded into the bridge. And they commissioned eight statues. And one is a statue of, like, you know, some elegant, ornate Roman woman who represents education. And the other is an elegant, ornate Roman woman who represents local government. That's amazing. So who nowadays, yeah, who nowadays is going to build a statue to local government? So you know what? I do actually see those. I see those on the bus. Um, so you oh, can you just just about yeah, see them. Just and I've been wondering about those. I kept meaning to look them up. But, of course, I didn't need to bother. I should have just asked you. <laughs> I can't actually remember what the other six are. The reason I know is I took a school trip on a, on a boat trip once and we went I was looking up things that they could look up beforehand and I saw this that one of them was dedicated to local government I thought how do you explain that how do you explain that <laughs> let's just gloss over that so this is the great kind of municipal era of, of government and so another little anecdote again that came out of our last episode uh, as well as doing like high level research for this episode I, I also spoke to my mum and my mum went to one of these board schools she went to actually I didn't realise it when we were recording it but my mum went to one of the very first board schools in London she went to it after it was set up she's not that old <laughs> but the school she went to was um in Whitechapel it's not there anymore and it was built in 1895 I don't know 18 I think it's 1875 yeah so one of the very first and it was built by the guy we talked about in the last episode E.R. Robson and I said to her what was it like she said it was brilliant she was great. She had have parquet flooring. Um, so I thought, isn't that interesting? <laughs> she went to the school when it was 60 years old. She still thought it was really beautiful. These places, they were like palaces, I think, a little bit. And even when they were they were older, they were still like beacons in the district. There's all kinds of that. They're very well funded, a lot of them. And actually, again, local government being popular and well funded, they're actually so well funded, these schools, that it causes problems. And there's a bit of a backlash from the, the kind of right wing over it who say, well, these are more expensive than we bargained for. Some of the critics of them say, well, these schools are too expensive. They're more expensive than they're supposed to be. So the rates we're paying are more than they should be. And the other thing a lot of the critics say about these, these schools at the time is they say the problem is they say because they're so nice and they're so well built and they're nicer than all the church schools, Wealthy parents are sending their kids there and that's not supposed to be how it works. They're meant to be for poor kids. So there's a story that like in Wandsworth, there's a, a kind of wealthy man who sends his kid to the school and his coachman sends his kid to the same school. And there's people on the local board who are saying, well, that's not on. That's like the rich person taking advantage of a service for poor people. Now, you ask what is different from today. Let's just reflect on how different that is. Right. Nowadays, you have policymakers who are desperate for state schools to be socially integrated and middle class parents who they may not admit it, but they are desperate to avoid the schools in poor areas. <laughs> and what you've got here is the precise opposite. You've got policymakers who are desperate for the schools not to be integrated. They say, no, this is not what we've intended. 
and middle class parents who are like, no, I quite fancy sending my kid there. It's a nice school. There's some things now that it is quite hard to get your head around. So you've got to bear all this in mind, I think, when we're discussing the absenteeism issue. Okay, so that's quite a lot of very substantial differences. But what are the similarities? So I think the similarities are, maybe this is, is, I don't know, we'll discuss this later, is this just similar across all of history and time, regardless of the context? The big similarity is for all that the buildings are lovely, for all that they're well-funded, for all that there's this great zeal and enthusiasm about education and building a new world, some kids just don't want to go to school. Um, uh, And some families don't want to send their kids to school. Um, So absenteeism is a problem. Um, And a lot of the debates around absenteeism are quite similar to the ones that you hear today. And in fact, some of the kind of more extreme voices, (laughs) you can imagine, I've said this before, but you can imagine them being on Twitter and and making these arguments, right? (laughs) So first of all, you've got working class parents who just don't want to send their kids to school. And there's working class kids who don't want to go to school. And we'll discuss the reasons why. Why might you not want to go to school uh, or send your children to school? We'll discuss a bit of that later. But there are places where because of this, there are teachers and attendance officers trying to get the kids into school and there will be physical violence. You know, so fights will break out between teachers um, and between sort of parents and and children. So there's one story with one from a fairly notorious slum in East London where a little boy is brought into the schoolyard, he's crying, he's eight years old, he's crying, he's refusing to go into school, he's got to be carried in, he screamed, kicked, um, tried to run out, his teacher sends for the head teacher, the head teacher canes him, he carries on screaming, his mum rushed in and his mum swears, uh, threatens, and then the head teacher says, with much difficulty, I got her out of the school, but a mob assembled in the yard and street, which was only dispersed by the arrival of the police. So I'm not saying that's happening everywhere but that is happening a bit particularly in some of the tougher areas you've got that to contend with some you know what do you do if a child just doesn't and their parents don't want them to go to school and that brings out all kinds of interesting political commentary which i think there are parallels today so one is you've got a section of almost the 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 sort of the right wing of the conservatives on a lot of the school boards who are saying well look this is also wasteful you know, we're spending all this money on these palatial school buildings and it's a waste because these families and kids, they're feckless. They can't benefit from it. Do they ever need to learn to read? Don't they just need to learn to work hard? You're putting all these ideas in there you know, above the station in their heads. You know, this is this is ridiculous. So you've got a bunch of people making that argument and you've got all the little bit of a pamphlet war as well. So it is a very entertaining title of a book. I think that is written in, um, in, the, in the 1870s, late 1870s. It's anonymous and it's called The Education Craze and Its Results. School boards, their extravagance and inefficiency. And this is all about how, why are we, why are we doing this? What is the point? And, and especially given a lot of the, the working class themselves don't want it. So that's one element. And I can imagine that on Twitter today. I can imagine people saying, you know, what, what a waste. Why are we spending all this money? You've then got another section that is still kind of conservative, sort of right wing, but is a little bit more sympathetic to working class families who just don't want to send their kids to school. And so you've got another strand of often their magistrates uh, who are saying, well, look, you know, we're, we're English. We're, it's about liberty and freedom. <laughs> Should we really be compelling a parent or a child to go to school and there's um debate in the house of commons where one conservative mp says it's this is an advance towards socialism for my part i as a free-born englishman detest compulsion and you might be thinking well is that just the conservatives and the upper classes saying that 
but you actually end up with a quite an odd alliance between the upper classes and the working classes, which I think you see pop up again time to time in other parts of British history, which is that both the upper classes and the working classes are being quite resistant to what they might see as maybe middle class bourgeois forms of state control or coercion. And then that's it. The people who are very much in favour of um, compelling children to go to school um, are often the middle classes, the newer middle classes. They're really committed to education. They want to make these schools work. They want to get as many kids in school as possible. And some of them do differ in their approach. So some of these middle classes, they want to get the kids into school, essentially. They want to use the carrot, not the stick. So this is about you build these beautiful schools, you make them lovely, you make them uh, as, as cheap or as possible as free. You provide free meals, which is another huge debate at this time. But then there are also middle class people who also want to see not just the carrot, but a little bit of you know, the stick as well. And that there has to be some kind of compulsion around fines, potentially even prison sentences to, to make this happen. So I think all of that spectrum of like working class, middle class, upper class, tensions within all of their thoughts... I mean, that whole spectrum you can probably see a little bit of today. Is there much propaganda in favour of schools? You know, is there, is there an attempt by the people who are supportive of schools and compulsory attendance to educate and create a culture where school attendance is seen as important? Yes, yes, it definitely is. As I say, there is. it's not just all about being punitive. There's a lot of stuff being done to, to make it seem like a good thing to go to school. And there's also, this is, I think, probably the origin of the medal for good attendance or the certificate for good attendance. Um, so these still exist today. I remember they had these when, when I was at school, when I was teaching, they, they still existed. Some schools have them for staff too, right? <laughs> yes, yes, they do. I, that's right. I've, been in, I've worked as staff in school who have those as well. And they seem also to be very similar to the way they work today. You get bronze and silver medals if you don't miss school and what we know nowadays is these medals if you don't miss their school they play on some of the most uh, sort of habit forming features of our minds so behavioral economists nowadays all these people who talk about nudge theory or whatever what these medals do is they obviously want you to build up a streak you know never take a day off school like keep attending school and actually when you're rewarded for stuff like this it gets a bit addictive <laughs> And I've seen it happen with kids and it happened back then too. So Annie Besant, who's a big figure in the school board, a big figure in kind of socialist London at this time, she says, uh, groom stories were told of boys who would not go to a father's funeral and who lost life by attendance at school despite illness in order to not miss their medals. Um, and there's stories about a girl be, you know, being in a fire and getting burned. And then the first thing she says when she wakes up and gets consciousness is, well, I lose my medal. It, it kind of works, almost these streaks, they work a little bit too well. Uh, people get a bit obsessed with them. But you also get, and I've seen this too, you get the flip side of it, is that once a kid's missed a couple of days, then you lose all incentive. And you just end up going, well, there's no point, I may as well just miss loads of days now. Uh, that is very similar sort of incentives and rewards. And so who are the people who are trying to enforce attendance? Who are the people dragging these eight-year-old boys kicking and screaming into the school gates? Again, from very early on, after these school boards are established and the schools are being built, the, the, the local school boards are also bringing in a system of, they call them school visitors or attendance officers. They are probably like nowadays, they're like a combination of a social worker, a policeman, and maybe like a bit of a statistician. And the school boards want to try and employ women in this job, but they end up, the kind of person they employ in this job is tends to be a man, tends to be an ex-policeman, ex-military, ex-prison officer, sort of not of a 
massively high social status so sort of upper working class lower middle class probably from the class of kids they're inspecting but just you know a little bit sort of at the top end of it and they're as i say their formal name's a school visitor they get known as the school board men uh they also sometimes get known as the kid copper there's a lot of stories about them <laughs> they're not not all good stories and they become a bit a bit of a they do become these quite significant sort of mythic figures i think in in this era and they're so significant that their their aura sort of persists even after the school board's abolished and I, I know this because when i was growing up in east london in the 80s and 90s people would still talk about you know you'll have the school board round you know if, if someone's off for too long you'll have the school board round and this is 78 years after the school board's been abolished and all the histories i've read of it so this isn't just me ringing up my mum again all the histories I've read of this, they say, yeah, that that's true. You know, the the name, the school board persists. <laughs> People are still talking about the school board uh, 78 years after it goes. So it has, it, it's, it, it really resonates in a lot of working class communities and not always for good. And what powers of compulsion did they have beyond their sort of general intimidating presence? Their first job is to compile, they have to get to know their patches really well. And their first job is to compile a list of all of the children who are in their area and to do that they go around and knock on the door and they try and find how many kids are in this household and a parent can lie and often parents do lie <laughs> um, parents can be violent and as i say in the early days they often are violent look as with all these things there's, there's a lot of them there's some who take their responsibilities seriously i think and behave well there's probably some who don't behave so well you know you get these stories of this idea that they might just barge in even if no one opens the door push their way around the house so that's one thing so their first thing is to compile how many, you know, find out how many kids are in their their patch. And then they've got the responsibility of, of going around and, you know, chasing up those children who are missing and not going to school. Um, so they'll be out on the street, almost kind of like a policeman on their patch, rounding up children, but also just trying to find out why, why children aren't, aren't in school. And then what they can do is they can have, they have a series of punishments they can do where they can raise a summons, they can fine a family for non-attendance. And the fines can end up escalating up into a prison sentence. So this is quite a big deal. And these are some quite poor families. They do have sort of quite significant powers and there's quite a lot of them. And as I say, they become very, very well known. And if you talk to people now, nowadays, <laughs> uh, in their 50s or 60s, they will still be maybe using that phrase and talking about the, the school board, which is a sign of, of how much it persists. So look, I'll give you a good story and a bad story because I'm sure they weren't all good or, or all bad, but the, you know, you get lots of stories about them. You know, one of the bad stories, which ended up in Parliament and, and, and was reported in the Times as well, was a man who was in poor health, nearly blind, couldn't work, but he had a wife and three children. And one of his children sort of didn't attend school. He was fined. He couldn't pay the fine. He was in prison for five days. And nowadays that feels outrageous back then people felt it was outrageous now there is a debate over whether maybe did the times top up this story was it actually as the detail the same but apparently the times the story in the times led to public donations to this man john spear of nearly three pounds so there was that shows you there's a real public sympathy for people on the wrong side of maybe some of these quite punitive enforcements of, of this there's constant sort of talk about that throughout throughout the sort of 19th early 20th century there's a an, another another article in the in a lewisham newspaper years after this this case which says school board visitors and superintendents are as a rule like bumble mm. so that's mr bumble the workhouse officer from oliver twist 
and are hard and harsh to the unfortunate people. So that mention of Mr. Bumble and the sort of link there with the workhouse is is very interesting. And so in previous episodes, we've talked about how there is this great popular radical support for public education and how it's something where generally there is a lot of support from working class communities for it. But it's interesting that as, as it's brought in and you get this compulsion behind it, it probably does alienate quite a few working class people. And that, that varies over the country as well. So people in London certainly have their issue with it. But a lot of issues up in the north in the textile districts because families are used to their children going out to work. And the idea that suddenly you're saying, well, no, they can't go out to work and earn money, even for sort of half time or whatever, that they've got to be in school the whole time, even when they're sort of 11, 12, 13. You know, even sort of trade unionists who have campaigned for this uh, compulsory education, even they, you know, get quite, quite upset by some of the, the compulsion that goes into it. Are all of these school visitors like the child catcher or, or are any of them more benevolent figures? Yeah, so they're not all Mr Bumble. Maybe some of them are a bit more Mr Cheerable. Um, so some of them are, are, are a bit nicer. There's one guy, John Reeves, who writes a book. He writes a book called Recollections of a School Attendance Officer. And it does have some of these unpleasant stories of sort of violence and people are threatening and abusing him and well, it's all quite antagonistic but it also has i think a lot more positive stories in it too so this guy john reeves um he helps to he helps to supply food and clothes to lots of these children so some of the reason they're not going to school is they don't have enough food to eat they don't have clothes to wear so he helps work with charitable organizations to get these children food i think there's others who so there's this weird thing at the time again because you've got these conservatives on the school boards who are resistant to waste and inefficiency you actually have this this thing where the schools themselves cannot serve they cannot um serve free school meals they cannot pay for that like it's forbidden for them to pay for that from their from their rates so instead what has to happen is you can have charitable donations that will do a school meal and so there's a lot of school attendance officers who will support that and they'll uh, make sure you know they'll go around and, and, and be waiters and serve at that so there's lots of them who are doing good work and really getting to know the people in their area um, and trying to, to to provide them with lots of support. And there's also a really interesting link between these school attendance officers and one of the really big, still very significant investigations into the life of the poor in London at this time. Um, Charles Booth writes this very famous kind of survey of, of London's poor. And he is quite inspired by a lot of these school visitors. And he relies on a lot of their knowledge and their judgment about the lives of the London poor in one of the volumes of his his book he writes a bit of a tribute to them and he says they are in daily contact with the people and have a very considerable knowledge of the parents of the school children especially of the poorest amongst them and of the conditions under which they live no one can go as I have done over the description of the inhabitants of street after street taken house by house and family by family full as it is of picturesque details noted down from the lips of the visitor to whose mind they've been recalled by the open pages of his own schedules and doubt the genuine character of this information and its truth. Taking them as a body, I cannot speak too highly of their ability and good sense. Without their help, nothing could have been done. So, yeah, on the one hand, you've got people saying, oh, they're like Mr Bumble. On the other hand, you've got Charles Booth saying these are dedicated body of public servants who are doing their best in incredibly difficult areas. So you make your own mind up. And we've touched on some of the reasons why students might be absent from school, but can you elucidate a little bit more about what might be a reason for people not to be attending school? Yeah, so um, they're probably, a lot of them, the reasons that you would guess. So the biggest reason, actually, is illness. So it's, you know, it's interesting, sort of, you know, we've, we've come through COVID and post-COVID, there seems to be a lot of post-COVID issues of why why kids now are not attending school. 
but the number of different illnesses that, that, that the kids are getting at this point and, you know, really, really serious illnesses that can kill as well. And, you know, there's still relatively high child mortality at this point. Ringworm is really prevalent. There's still, you know, measles, chickenpox outbreaks. I think, you know, cholera is in the past. It's not that far in the past. <laughs> um, it's not just also the kids getting sick. So obviously if you've got a school where everyone's coming together, some of the times the teachers would get sick as well. So some very unpleasant kind of illnesses. And this is also happening at the time when people are getting more and more aware of public health. Um, and in some ways, the more aware people get of public health, actually the worse it makes the absenteeism problem, which we can probably all sympathise with too. As you get more public health officers appointed and people start to worry more about epidemics, then all of a sudden actually kids will stop coming into school if they're ill rather than trying to push through it. <laughs> And, uh, you know, just not, not worrying about that. And obviously you see that today, don't you? That actually some people are saying, well, kids are not coming in because they've now got lower thresholds for what counts as being sick. Like in the past, if you had a cough and a sneeze, there was a thing where you'd say, well, go in. And now it's like, well, actually, is that the responsible thing to do? But I think something like that is happening in the 1880s and 90s. So in a sense, on the illness front, things sort of as they're getting better on the absenteeism front, they get worse. And in the end, what the government does, because it, it does want schools to close if there are epidemics, it actually comes up with an epidemic grant where it says if you've had to close and therefore your children can't attend because there's an epidemic, the government will say, well, don't worry, no one make up that attendance grant through this epidemic grant. So, you know, that's a good thing because you're removing the incentive for a head to think, well, everyone's sick, but I'm going to keep opening because I need to get the money for the attendance grant. Yeah, illness is, is huge. It's a major reason. And presumably some of the pupils would end up with caring responsibilities at home if they had a, a sick parent. So that, that ties into the next sort of big set of reasons. So a whole bunch of stuff to do with poverty, really. Um, boys going out of the house to work for money. They need to work for money for their family. Girls either working for money or have to stay in and mind the children, mind the younger children, caring responsibilities. So all those things that you might expect. And and the other the other thing is that education still at this point is not completely free <laughs> so the government make it compulsory before they make it free <laughs> so you've got a situation where you've got incredibly poor kids with uh, you know in some cases need to work outside the home to earn money to help feed the family and you're saying right well not only can you not do that but you've got to uh stump up you know a couple of pence a week for the school as well and then if you don't attend we'll find you <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> And then on top of that, none of this applies to middle class families. <laughs> so all of these rules and compulsions only apply to the, the you know the sort of poorer poorer classes of society. So people are saying, well, if there's middle class kids are being kept off school, no one's no one's finding them. There's a lot of elements of this where you can see why for all the radicals and trade unionists and the working class who wanted this sort of state funding that there are aspects of it that, that do feel quite punitive. Yeah. Um, so illness, poverty not being able to afford the fees. Um, and then, you know, people also, the working class at this time have, especially in the big cities, have quite shifting home lives. So people are not staying in one place all the time. You know, if they can't pay the rent, they'll, they'll, they'll leave, they'll move to another area. So schools don't really have stable bodies, stable populations. Um, again, that's something I think we've seen a lot of in the last few years as well. So it's very hard in sometimes in for a school to get a handle on, like who should be. Uh, coming to their school who's absent or who's just sort of left the area so yeah a bunch of different things that make it difficult for students to to attend school 
And how much of a problem is absenteeism? Do we have statistics? Do we have sort of macro level statistics? Or is it all these sort of individual school visitors compiling their own little patches? So I would say the statistics, the, the, there's they're probably not as rigorous and as you know high quality as what we're used to now, but they're actually pretty good. <laughs> so you do have statistics for all these school boards that have been compiled together. Obviously, there's going to be methodological changes like, you know, you have to know how many kids there are to begin with and, you know, are there difficulties around that, what have you. But I think they're not bad and you could do a comparison. By 1909, so that's 40-odd years after the 1870 Act, 30 odd years after you've made it, the law has made it compulsory. Um, and by this stage, actually, it's also the government have finally got around to say we will make it free. So the elementary school attendance at this point is free. So by 1909, uh, what's the attendance rate? The attendance rate for ages five to 14 is about 90%. It's about 90%. That's pretty good. <laughs> that is pretty good. Um, do you want to have a guess at what it is today? Well, I mean, what, it depends. I guess it depends what, how you're defining absenteeism, though, of course, right? But so it's about, what, 7%, 7.5%? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's it. So at the minute, it's about 92%. And in 1909, with all the issues we've talked about still being issues, it was about 90%. <laughs> uh, now, before COVID, it was probably more like 95 um, but what is really interesting is all the studies you read on this, they say from 1910 onwards, you have a few blips for the two world wars. But from 1910 onwards, there's not really much improvement. Either, you know, it's it sort of gets to 90 percent, 1910 ish, and it doesn't really go up that much from then. So you do have a big spurt of all this school visitor stuff and getting rid of the fees and people getting into the habit of school being a thing you do. That makes a huge difference between sort of 1870, 1910. And from then on, that final sort of, you know, five, 10 percent is, is is quite stubborn, quite hard to, to do anything about. Um, and obviously, in the last couple of years, you've, you've seen um, seen it sort of go backwards a little bit because of because of COVID. Um, the other thing to say on the stats is we're talking about when I'm saying that 90 percent, 95 percent, 92 percent. That's like overall days missed. So you kind of add up how many kids are there. How many days available to go to school are there and how many of them are being missed overall? But obviously what that misses is, is you know, when I'm saying 90%, is that every kid missing 10% of school? Or is it like actually 10% of kids not going to school and everyone else going to school all the time? <laughs> the thing that you want to know is, like, have you got these persistent absentee absentees? Um, and that's something they worried about a lot then. That, you know, again, you've got this cadre of kids who are just barely going to school and that is something people worry about now yeah so that that's where we've had this dramatic uptick right so so we're now over over a 20 percent of pupils being classified as persistent absentees that is it so that is the really big leap so the the, the overall absentee rate has gone from today it's gone from five percent just before covid to seven and a half percent now but the persistent absentee rate is really it's actually doubled it's gone from 13% pre-COVID to 25% now. Um, and, and a persistent absentee, I think it's a, a kid who's, I think, missing 10% of school. So I always think of that as um, they're missing a day a fortnight. So you've now got a quarter of kids missing a day a fortnight. And as I said, that's, that's doubled from, from pre-COVID. So if I put that into context, because you have these numbers, you know, what does it mean 
if you've got a class of 30, if you're teaching a class of 30, and on average, there's actually probably, you've maybe got one child who might be a severe absentee. That child would be there less than half the time. In a class of 30, you might have one child who's who's not there half the time. You might have maybe seven who are missing a day a fortnight, and maybe the other sort of like 20 or so are missing a day a month. I think that's roughly, you know, an approximation of where we are today, where we are now. And as I say, I don't think that's enormously like that much better from where things are in 1910. And do you think it is possible to have a system with, you know, near enough 100 percent attendance? You know, is it possible to have compulsory education? So this is a, a good question. And I suppose the other thing in the sort of the literature on school absenteeism is people it's, it attracts a lot of attention and people think about it a hell of a lot as i say in this era we're talking about sort of 1870 to 1910 and then once it gets up to 90 percent for most for you know a lot of the 20th century then people stop sort of thinking about it they sort of just accept that 90 percent mark and i suppose if you're saying look you know kids get ill and if it is just most kids missing a little bit of school maybe that's fine so maybe that's why people are relaxed about it and then it kind of comes back as a bit of an issue in the 80s and 90s. And I think the new Labour government did quite a bit on it and did a lot. I remember when I started teaching, there was a lot around the, the modern day equivalent of the um, school board officer was the EWO, the Educational Work Officer. And, you know, there was a lot, a lot of stuff there about, you know, making sure kids turn up in school. And we see it now, as I say, post-COVID, it's become a big issue. I guess one interesting philosophical debate, which people had in the 19th century, and pops up again in the 1960s with, um, I think it's R.S. Peters, who's an educationalist who talks about this, is to what extent is compulsory education possible? We're talking a lot about getting kids in the room. You know, you get them into the classroom. <laughs> We're not even having all the discussion talking about what happens once they're in the classroom. You know, so is that kid who's been compelled to attend and like one of the boys in the 19th century, you know, literally been dragged kicking and screaming into the school. When he gets into school, is he going to learn? Especially when he's just been beaten too. Oh, yeah, that as well. You know, R.S. Peters is sort of maybe a, a modern, right in the 60s, maybe, a, a, you know, echoing some of the things those conservative commentators in the late 19th century were saying, where he's, I think, I think his line is, you know, compulsory education is, is almost a contradiction in terms that you, you cannot compel anyone to be educated. And I, I remember in a, you know, in a less extreme version, a, a, a lot of the schools I've worked in, there've been signs up on the walls, to, something along the lines of, you know, the teacher can open the door, but you have to walk in. And I think that is the challenge with education. You can set up all this infrastructure and you can set up things and they will make it more likely that children learn, but can you get to 100%? And I don't know enough internationally about are there any countries that have ever got to 100% and have no persistent absenteeism? I mean, I do think an element of realism too. If you've got younger children, they do get sick. So I do think 100% is, you know, if you had the perfect society, it wouldn't be realistic. But, you know, is there any society that's ever got to a point where there's no persistent absenteeism, no severe absenteeism? I, I genuinely don't know. There are probably some who have done better than us. I think it's something that does make you think about what does it mean to go to school what does it mean to be educated and it makes you think you know yeah why are children not attending school obviously the big reasons in the 1890s as i say are poverty ill health now clearly there's poverty and ill health today but it's of a different nature a different type to the poverty and ill health of the 1890s what's you know what's the issue now you've got a lot of when you talk about ill health now a lot of it is mental health issues and anxiety and students feeling frightened to leave the house you hear a lot of that um, and maybe having some COVID anxiety. So, you know, how, how do you deal with those kind of things? How do you address those? These are not 
uh, easy, easy questions to answer. And I think there are also controversial issues here, which maybe people don't want to admit. So, for example, I was discussing this with a school leader recently who will remain nameless. And this school leader was saying that they do have a problem with some students not attending. And they said, but often those students are the ones who, when they do attend, are most disruptive <laughs> and perhaps, you know, most disruptive to the rest of the class. Now, one thing we found at No More Marking in some of the data that we uh, do, we do lots of assessments and my day job is, you know, educational assessment. What we found in common with a lot of other education assessment organisations, the spread of attainment is increasing. So what that means is you have some students doing worse. Now, given everything we've talked about, that feels unsurprising. <laughs> if you've got a lot of children not attending school as much, they're probably not going to do as well. What we've also found, which I think is harder to rationalise, is that some students are doing better than they were pre-COVID. So why is that happening? And again, is there that, you know, this is what a school leader was suggesting. Is there a controversial thing which people don't, maybe don't want to confront, which is that some students being absent, maybe that makes it easier for other students to learn. So again, you know, these are not easy conversations to have. Um, but these are, these are the issues where I think when you start to think about absenteeism, these are the issues it brings up. One of the things I did just want to quickly talk about was the class dimension of this, which is so interesting. You know, the fact that when we're talking about the 1890s, we're talking about working class families being compelled to have their children attend school, but not such a similar compulsion with people from the middle classes and the upper classes. A sort of paternalistic assumption that they can make decisions for their own benefit, but working class families don't necessarily have the ability to choose. And then one of the things that came through in the LSE study that I mentioned is that prior to the pandemic, absence correlated very closely with areas of deprivation. But since the pandemic, that relationship has broken down, actually. And a lot of these pupils that are persistently non-attending are not from deprived backgrounds. They're actually middle class children. Yes, you're absolutely right, Lizzie. It's been one of the most fascinating things about the current absenteeism issue <laughs> uh, that I think people just naturally assume, oh, it's to do with disadvantage or it's to do with you know, poorer areas. But actually, yeah, this post-COVID increase in persistent attendance, it's, it, that, that relationship with disadvantage seems to have broken down. So essentially, it's a lot of, a lot of children who are not necessarily from poorer backgrounds who are not attending school. Yeah, as I say, it's some of it, there's, there's a lot of things, I think, probably to do with mental health issues that are going on here, which are probably affecting poorer and wealthier students working class and middle class students i think some of it we just don't know the reasons why i think it's something i think kind of everyone's hoping it'll go away <laughs> everyone i sort of i think hoped that you know once the, the the really big impacts of the pandemic were over we could sort of go back to normal but that isn't happening i guess you know you look at all the stats as they come out <laughs> as i say i think we're all hoping that it will just start to return to normal and the trend line will go the other way but it doesn't seem to be doing that so far and the longer it goes on, obviously, the more you're looking for reasons and looking for things you can do. And it does feel like a problem that whilst it has some similarities with things we've encountered before, there's quite a lot of differences, too. And then just to take your first question as well about the social, the sort of social class dynamics of it in the, the late uh, 19th century. So, you know, going back in time again, I think, yes, this is huge. And hopefully it has come out from everything I've said. There is just this tremendous, it's all those tremendous class divisions that you have in Victorian and Edwardian England. And one of the slightly amusing aspects of it, I would say, um, as someone who grew up in East London, what you have in this era, so the, the kind of person who nowadays would go to India on their gap year, in the late 19th century, that kind of person, they go and slum it in the East End. <laughs> um, and it's a thing. It's a thing they do. 
Um, you didn't go to India New Gap Year, did you, Lizzie? No, I didn't go to India in my... I think you've got to say Gap Year, Daisy. Gap Year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Well, when you didn't go to India in your Gap Year, you went to the East End. Clement Attlee does this, doesn't he? Right. I was going to come to Attlee. So Orwell does it a bit with down and out in Paris and London. One of the schools I talked about here where I read that story of the, the kid kicking off in the headmaster's study... That was in a part of the East End, Nickel Street, got fictionalised in a famous book called Children of the Jago. That was an area where people, I think, like to go and, you know, sort of slum it. Jack London wrote People of the Abyss. <laughs> and then you had a lot of independent schools who would set up missions mm-hmm. to, you know, darkest inner London. And one of the most famous is Haleybury, the Haleybury Independent School, which is, I think, up in Hertfordshire. And one of their most famous uh, students who went on one of those missions and helped address some of those sort of social issues was Clement Attlee. And it had a huge impact on him. So I'm being a little bit mean when I'm saying the sort of gap year India. I think some of these people are motivated by altruistic noble means. I think some are just looking for some sensationalist stories to go back and tell their mates about. But it's definitely a trend. It's definitely a thing. <laughs> um, and there's some very interesting kind of pop culture that comes out of it so there's a journalist and writer called george sims and he writes this very sentimental ballad which gets turned into a i think a, a really popular sort of play it's called the magic wand a school board officer story so he's not a school board officer he just goes around and tags along and wants to get some like get some stories that he can write about <laughs> And he writes, as I said, this quite sentimental ballad, which I will read a bit. Uh, Horrible dens, sir, aren't they? This is one of my daily rounds. It's here in these awful places that child life most abounds. We ferret from roof to basement in search of our tiny prey. We're down on their homes directly if they happen to stop away. Knock at the door. Pooh, nonsense. They wouldn't know what it meant. Come in and look about you. They'll think you're a school board gent. Did you ever see such hovels, dirty and damp and small? Look at the rotten flooring. Look at the filthy wall. And <laughs> you read that. What's he talking about there? I mean, he's talking about, you know, you knock at the door and no one answers. You just break in. <laughs> you can see why people didn't like these school board people. You see why people didn't like, you know, people from the middle class coming and gawping at their houses. Uh, who would like that? <laughs> but on the flip side, you know, you have your Clement Attlees. You have people who I think are genuinely motivated by the more altruistic reasons. Well, I mean, it turns out he left wing, right? I mean, he's conservative at school. Yes, it does. It does turn him. He sees all this dreadful poverty and it does turn him left wing. And I think it's one of these, I say, I hope I've tried to fairly communicate some of the tensions that I think are present in both the working class, middle class and upper class kind of communities at this time. And I would say I saw that, you know, I can see that in my own family is that nobody likes having people come in and, <laughs> you know, the reason why this school board uh, idea persisted so when I was growing up in the 80s, people would talk about the school board is there was something unpleasant and punitive about it. And people don't like that. But on the other hand, people still want some funding for schools. People still want there to be um, people who will come and teach in the in these areas. There's tensions there with everyone. It's that tension between punitive model of, of social reform um, and maybe a, a nicer, cuddlier, softer one. And it's also about where is the point where the social reform starts to shade into, as I say, some of that the attitude you get where people just are maybe sensationalising it and want a nice story. So, look, I think it's a fascinating period of history and it's a, it's a fascinating point where a lot of the, the, the modern issues we grapple with now about social reform, social justice, it's where a lot of those debates begin. And I don't think we've resolved any of them. I think all of those debates that are being had back then, people are still having now in different ways and different formats 
with the big in important exception that nobody now <laughs> nobody now is building statues to local government <laughs> uh, <laughs> so <laughs> that's the big difference but lots of, of similarities in the way the debates work mm-hmm. Thank you.